Good morning once again. Good to have you with us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 21 through 26, 38 through 40, 48. Matthew chapter 5. We're going back in this a little bit to pick up some verses we uh, missed. This is our City on a Hill teaching series. The title this uh, weekend is Love Philanthropy. And uh, let me ask you this question to start off with. How many know what that word means, philanthropy? Show of hands. All three of us here? Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Are you a love philanthropist? In, in other words, uh, let, me, let me ask that question a little bit differently here. Are you receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return? That would be a love philanthropist. You're familiar with a philanthropist as someone who's got so much money that they're looking for opportunities to give it away. So a love philanthropist would be someone that's got so much love in their heart that they're just recklessly giving it away without expecting anything in return. Sound interesting? Sound intriguing? How many would like to be there? I would. I don't think any of us really live there. I think it's something that we all struggle with. But imagine what your marriage or your family or the DB family or, or the community, this community or the world would be like if people could live like that. That they were so filled up with God's love that they recklessly gave, gave it away without expecting anything in return. That's a little bit of the idea of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let me give you uh, kind of how the, the outline goes. If you have your outline, you can look at it. This is uh, really the, kind of the thesis statement. Christianity is a set of drastically transformed, interrelated relationships with God, myself, and others. So you can see how the outline goes. I have a new relationship with others. That's where we'll start. Because I have a new relationship with myself that comes from a new relationship with God. So I've got others, I have a new relationship with others, you, because I have a new relationship with myself, and that new relationship with myself comes from my new relationship with God. By the way, anytime we have issues this way, which is, what is this way? This is horizontally. Anytime we have issues this way, where do you think the root problem is? What do you guys think? It's always this way. It's always this way. The whole Bible talks about that, but First John in, uh, more specifically talks about that, that if we have issues this way, marriage, parenting, family, co-workers, whatever, it's because we have issues this way. We've we got to get back to the root of what's going on in my heart and, and life. In fact, this is what's so crazy about what we're about ready to read, that he says that it is possible to have so much of the love of God in your heart that you can even love your adversaries, your enemies, that sound crazy? People that are out to get you, that you could still show them love? Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? But that's the truth of the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text. In fact, I'd like to pray Ephesians three, sixteen through 19. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, we pray that out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we would be rooted and established in love 
and may have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this text. I'm going to begin reading. Now, we covered part of this text a a few weeks back, but I'm going to reread verses 21 through uh, 22, and then we're going to pick up where we didn't get through our studies thus far, uh, verse 23. So this is chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you... That everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable uh, to the hell of fire. Now, we, we addressed that a few weeks ago. How many remember us talking about those uh, verses? Okay, just two of us. Okay, this. I, I'm not going to re-preach them this morning. You'll have to go back and listen. Okay, I know some more of you heard that uh, just come on, get with it this morning. This is the early crowd, as, uh, as Ryan said. So you guys are usually more with it than the second crowd. They're still asleep sometimes, but I think that... Uh, here we go. So we've done those verses, and now this is where the verses we didn't get... By the way, that just basically means that, you know, you might say, well, I've never murdered anybody, and yet malice in your heart are the seeds of murder... And, and the Bible says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And we might not have murdered anybody, literally, but we've murdered them with our, with our attitude and our language. And uh, that's what he's talking about there. It goes much deeper than just having done the physical act. There's an attitude that drives that, and you need to be aware of that. But then he goes on in verse 23, he says, So if you are offering your gift at, an, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you've, you've offended him. You've hurt him. You've had an attitude towards him, basically, that you just like, eh, whatever, could care less about him. You had an attitude of indifference, basically, is what he's talking about here. He says that he has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and... and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. By the way, that kind of an attitude that he's talking about, this malice comes from, and we're going to talk about it, comes from bitterness. And typically, bitterness can come from hurt or having life not go your way. And so he's talking about this where we just kind of leave a wake of destruction. I'm just ticked off at God and everybody else, and you just kind of leave a wake of destruction. And basically he gives us this metaphor. It's like, hey, you're in prison. This is, this is like a prison camp experience if you don't deal with the bitterness and deal with the fact that you're leaving a wake of destruction wherever you go. So he's given us some really great insight. By the way, did I tell you that this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is showing us how he wants us to live as a result of us being gripped by his amazing grace. And he says, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. That you would live your life in such a way that people would go, wow, I've never seen anybody quite respond like that before. What is it that you have that others don't have? And then you can point him to your Father in heaven. That's the point of that. Let's continue reading. Jump to verse 38. 
And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now check this out, verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He said, you're never more like your father than when you're loving your enemies because your father does that. That's pretty heavy duty stuff there. And then he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, okay, first of all, let's walk through this. I have a new relationship with others. That's where we'll start. And then we'll move to because I have a new relationship with myself. And then that comes from a new relationship with God. And I always keep in mind, my issues this way, the reason why I don't want to love my enemies is because I really don't understand. I'm not living in the reality of his amazing love for me. So it always goes back vertically. The horizontal problems are always vertical issues, and there's some heart things that I need to do, some heart work. So let's start. I have a new relationship with others. Now, I have to lay a foundation here. Here's the first point, first fill in the blank. It's never loving to let someone sin against you. Have you guys heard me say that before? I'm going to keep saying that because oftentimes when we talk about loving our enemies, immediately people that are in abusive situations think that they're, they're supposed to let that person continue to abuse them. That is not true. That is not true. That's not what it's saying here. That's wrong. And so it is never loving to let someone sin against you. Verse 44, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is implied in the text, if you understand what love is, but it's also implied and and really specific in the fuller context of Scripture. Love without truth is sentimentality. So we should always have love and truth. And you can't really love someone unless you really know them and it involves truth. But, but love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. And so over and over again, we hear about truth and love. We talked about it last week, truth and love. That We need to speak truth in love. And that increases intimacy, but also maturity. That's how we grow up. That's how we're transformed. I mean, when you look at the cross, two things should hit you. I mean, you should know that when you look at the cross, oh my goodness, I'm more sinful, but I'm more loved. There's truth, I'm sinful, but I'm amazingly loved. So even the cross, the essence of the cross, the essence of the Christian life is is about truth in the context of amazing love. And that's how we grow and we mature. Any love that is afraid to confront is not really love, but rather a kind of emotional hunger or selfish desire to be loved. It's it's loving the love you get from the person rather than loving the person. 
And that's unhealthy. When you love, I'm more concerned about the love that I get from them as opposed to speaking the truth to them. And that's an emotional hunger, and it's extremely unhealthy. So it's never loving to let someone sin against you. So you got to keep that in mind because I'm going to hit some pretty hard things here, and I'm not telling you to subject to anybody's abuse. That's not what it's saying. Here's the next one. It's a kind of love that stands out from the crowd. Verses 46 through 48. Did you notice what he says here? He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Here's what he's doing. He's talking about that's, that is actually a counterfeit of the real kind of love that the Bible talks about. Counterfeit love. That's a counterfeit love. Counterfeit love is selfish affection. It is helping others, but only because it profits you. Can you help others when it doesn't profit you? That's the point that he's making. See, he's saying that's selfish affection. Anybody can do that. You're going to love them because they're going to love you back. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying he's actually defining for us what would be classified as counterfeit love, biblically speaking. And so what is, what is this love? It is meeting the needs. In fact, the bar is so high that when I talk about this, you're going to go, there's no way that I, I, I do that. And none of us do. We don't really live up to the level of love that he describes in the Bible. But it is meeting the needs of others with the same amount of attention, affection, and action that you would meet your own needs. I mean, so we, we simply we don't do that. That's when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's saying about that. And so we don't live there. So immediately you go, wow, I'm I'm not even close. Yeah, exactly. That's why you need Jesus. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. So that we can spend our life living for him in an effort to try to live that kind of life as we fill our hearts up with his love so that we can be that loving. Now, okay, this might be a bit of a stretch, so let me give you an illustration of what that is. How many watched the World Series this last week? Watched the final game in the World World Series? Okay, there was three of us again. (laughs) I'm striking out this morning, aren't I? Okay, there was, uh, how many don't even know what the World Series is? Okay. How many really don't even give a rip about the World Series? Well, most of you, okay. So this is a really a bad illustration, but hang in there with me, okay? Because it's all I've got. Okay, so, uh, so the World Series, there was this team, Boston Red Sox, and the St. Louis, oh, you know, yeah, St. Louis Cardinals. And so who won the World Series? Boston. Oh, you do know. I heard a lot of you say that, Boston. So here's, so Boston won, and if you're a Boston fan or whatever, and I don't ever watch baseball, it's like watching paint dry. And, uh, and uh, actually, it's more exciting than that. It really is. But uh, you've got to know the game. You've got to know a little bit more of the game. And I watched the, the World Series, and it was a lot of fun. And, and I didn't really care f- you know, for either one of the teams, but it was fun watching. But imagine this. Here's the World Series. To love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39, it, it would be for a St. Louis player or fan to be as excited for Boston winning the World, World Series as if St. Louis had won the World Series. I'm not doing that. No way. I can't stand that other team. Exactly. I mean, we're just talking teams here. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about you'd be just... By the way, did you see uh, St. Louis Cardinals and how they responded? Like most teams do. I could die. Guys, you're in the World Series. You're like runner-up. Big deal. 
That's wonderful. And, and why, would I, why would I say that? And what's interesting about this is that so it's, it is meeting the needs of others with the same amount of attention, affection, and action that you would meet your own needs. And this isn't just, I mean, you could see someone doing that for a friend, because I'm sure that there were friends on opposing teams, and they're like, hey, I'm happy for you, down the road maybe. Yeah, I'm glad that you won that. We're a better team than you. But uh, other than that, and you could, do, you could see them doing that for a, for a friend, but how about just a neighbor you really don't know? How about for an enemy? Do you see how heavy duty this is? This is a mind blower. When he said that, he was like, Really? I'm going to love an enemy with the kind of love that you love the world? Yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. Now, why, why would you do that? How would you do that? Because winning or losing the World Series is nothing compared to having the sacrificial love of our Savior. I mean, hey, let's just say that your favorite team wins the World Series five years in a row, ten years in a row. One second into heaven, that doesn't mean anything. That's nothing, really. In all eternity, in light of all eternity, being with our Savior, all the success and failures are just like nothing compared to having his love. Do you see his love like that? That's why that's, why that's so critical to understand that. Um, I mean, his love is it's indispensable and it's amazingly costly. Here's the next point. It is, so this is a, it is a kind of love that stands out from the crowd. It's just not because, hey, it's, it's easy to love people that love you. But he's saying, we're talking about loving people who don't love you with the kind of love that he loves us with. And then he says, it is about overcoming evil with good. And that's really what he's saying here, verses 38 through 42. And I gave you some good cross-references. You can study more on on your own this. Uh, But uh, in, in essence, he's really saying, in verses 38 through 42, don't become like the evil being done to you, but overcome evil with good. I mean, this is the original breaking bad breaking the cycle of retaliation. Notice what he says in verse 38. He says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This was meant to be a rule for society, uh, justice, not for personal revenge, because it had just really gotten out of hand. And when they established this in the Old Testament, the rich were exploiting the poor. And it wasn't meant for personal vengeance, to settle the books, to settle the score. It was meant for the justice system to, to work more appropriately. But you were supposed to catch not the, the letter of the law, but it was, there was a spirit behind this. And then he goes on to describe the spirit of this in verses 39 through 42. He says, turn the other cheek, give your cloak as well, go the extra mile, give to the other who begs. What is he talking about there? This is what he's talking about. That as you interact with your enemies, people that you're, your adversaries, that you are to be so... Melt in your mouth sweet that though they may disagree with you and you disagree with them, they can't deny the fact that you love them. That's what he's talking about. You're doing everything you can to build a bridge to them. And yeah, you have disagreement. But in that context, you are loving them. And you have an attitude of love toward them. That's what he's saying. Um, I think the best example of that is I've showed the video, but let me give you a little bit more of the background of it. It's called Amish Grace, and this is in Tim Keller's recent book on walking with God through pain and suffering. This is what he says. In in October of 2006, a gunman took hostages in a one-room schoolhouse of an Amish community in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. This is a little bit long, so hang in there with me because there's a lot of really good insight in this that I'm going to read. So uh, a gunman goes in, 
He took hostages in this one-room schoolhouse of an Amish community in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. After shooting 10 victims, five of whom died, ages 7 to 13, he killed himself. Within hours after the suicide murders, members of the Amish community visited the killer's parents and expressed sympathy for their loss and support for the hard days ahead. When the gunman was buried a few days later, his young widow and her children were amazed to discover that half those attending the funeral were Amish who showed nothing but support and concern for the murderer's family. Is that heavy? Yeah, it is. The forgiveness and love shown by the Amish community toward the shooter and his family was the talk of the entire country. The way they handled their suffering had been a powerful testimony to the truth of their faith and to the grace and glory of their God. It is worth noting, and this is what's interesting, it is worth noting that the testimony of the Amish to Christ was so powerful that many observers felt the need to mute it. A made-for-TV film about the incident created a fictional character, Ida Graber, an Amish mother of one of the murdered children. In the movie, she is so filled with doubts and anger at God and so unable to forgive the gunman that she almost leaves her faith. Those who were actually involved with the Amish after the shooting countered that despite the deep grief and pain, there was simply no one in the community who had their faith shaken who could not forgive. The film showed without aiming to that the secular filmmakers couldn't really comprehend an attitude toward God that enabled people to accept mysterious providence and dispense forgiveness without bitterness toward either God or the shooter. You guys tracking with me on that? It's pretty powerful. Four years after the incident, a group of sociologists published a book about it. One of their main conclusions was that our secular culture is not likely to produce people who can handle suffering the way the Amish did. Many pundits and commentators across the country tried to claim the Amish's startling love as, quote, the best in us, ignoring the profoundly and distinctly Christian roots of what they did. The Amish grace scholars called called that out as naive. To think, well, that's the best in all of us. They said, no, that's, that's naive. That isn't. They argued that the Amish ability to forgive was based on two things. Now listen to this. First, it was grounded in deep reflection and meditation on Christ forgiving his tormentors and killers. At the heart of their faith was a man dying for his enemies. And if you are a member of a community that speaks and sings about it, rehearses it, and celebrates it constantly, then the practice of forgiving even the murderers of one's children will not seem impossible. The second, but the second, the authors pointed out that at its heart, forgiveness is a form of self-renunciation. It means giving up your right to pay back. As sociologists, they knew that the Christian view is that the meaning of life is to give up one's individual interest for the sake of God and others. It is to give up one's freedom in order to live according to God's will and to the benefit of one's neighbor. What is he talking about? He's talking about the love we're talking about here. But this is directly opposed to how Americans are taught to live. We live in an individualistic, consumeristic society, a society in which we are taught not self-renunciation, but self-assertion, that your freedom, interest, and needs must always come first. Then I end here. And that is why peace and love in the face of evil and suffering is one of the greatest testimonies possible to the world of the reality of God, to his glory and his grace.
pretty amazing. That's, yeah, that's worth applauding, isn't it? That's, a, that's amazing. That is amazing. See, I, I'm convinced that's a, that's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of the Amish, that they put that on display, their, their love for God. And so I have a new relationship with others. It's never loving to let someone sin against you. It's a kind of love that stands out from the crowd. It's about overcoming evil with good. And here's the next one. So because I have a new relationship with myself. So, I, so I've got to do some real heart work here, which will lead to my relationship with God. So this is what I've got to do. I've got to, I've got to guard my heart against bitterness. Did you hear what we read in verses 21 through 22? You have heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say, don't have a bad attitude is what he's saying. He said, beware of bitterness. Beware of the bitterness that's in our hearts. That's why he says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil a foothold because one of the best ways we give the devil a foothold in our life is through, through bitterness. And it usually comes secondary to hurt. We're hurt. You hurt me. I'll never get over that. I can't believe what you did to me. Ugh! That kind of an attitude. He said, man, be careful. That, that kind of attitude is going to poison you. And so we've got to guard our heart. Hebrews uh, 12, 15, it's a wonderful verse. It, it says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and a bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. That's the idea here that he's talking about here. That you, yeah, we, guess what? Hey, listen to me. You're going to take some hits in life. You're going to take some major hits in life. It's how you deal with those hits. You're going to let it turn into bitterness? You're going to be poisoned with that and then poison everybody around you? That's the point that he's saying here. He says, you can't let that happen to you. Don't do that. Guard your heart from this bitterness. And so how would you, um, how would you know that you're bitter? What would be some marks of bitterness? You guys, yell them out to me if you think you know some. Anger, yeah. Just unresolved. Sarcasm, ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. By the way, do you hear a lot of sarcasm out there in our, in our, uh, in our world? Yeah. Late night talk show host, it's all sarcasm. It's all cynicism. You know, they try to joke about it, but there's something underlying a lot of that stuff. How about oversensitivity? You bring up somebody's name and somebody just like, woo, they go right off like, a, like wow, what was that about? I didn't, I, all I said was mention this person's name or talked about this or you try to bring up a topic. So oversensitivity, slander. Oh yeah, when you're talking negative about people, yeah, that's a good one too. Jealousy, yes, Absolutely. It's a critical, sarcastic attitude, cynical. Let me uh, share with you an interesting story that sometimes it can be even subtle in our lives and we can't see it. Some fellows were stationed in Korea during the Korean War. And while there, they hired a local boy to cook and clean for them. And uh, so this young man comes in to cook and clean for these uh, soldiers. And being a bunch of jokesters, these guys soon took advantage of the boy's seeming naivete and they would smear Vaseline on the stove handle so that when he'd turn the stove on in the morning, he'd get grease all over his fingers. They'd put a little water buckets over the door so that he'd get uh, uh, soaked with, uh, when he opened the door. They'd even nail his shoes to the floor during the night. And day after day, the little fellow took the brunt of their practical jokes uh, without saying anything. No blame, no self-pity, no temper tantrums. And finally, the men felt guilty about what they were doing. So they uh, sat down with the young Korean and said, look, we, we know these pranks aren't funny anymore, and we are sorry. We're never going to take advantage of you again. And it seemed too good to be true to the, to the houseboy. 
No more sticky on stove, he, he asked. Nope. No more water on door? Nope. No more nail shoes to floor? Nope, never again. Okay, the boy said with a smile. I no more spit in soup. <laughs> so apparently this kid's been spitting in their sandwiches and their soup and stuff like that. So, so I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning here. Uh, we're kicking off our coffee bar this next weekend. <laughs> And these baristas have been working really, really hard to to make you handcrafted drinks. And if it doesn't kind of get out as fast as you think it should or as good as it should, be nice. You know what I mean? Be nice. So what am I saying here? That sometimes that's the reason why I don't ever go to fast food and I'm always nice to all the fast food people because you never know what they're going to do to your food. That's gross, huh? But, But what was going on here? Yeah, he was getting kind of back at them behind their back. And so you can kind of put on a nice smiley face in front of people, but behind their back, slander, as you were saying, and critical and cynical and mad and angry and maybe doing something behind their back. And that's the attitude that he's talking about here as it relates to anger. He says, don't murder, but man, don't have a bad attitude. Work through that. So guard your heart from bitterness. Here's the next one. See, uh, oh, hey, do this real quick uh, before they put the notes up, before they put the answers up there. Turn to the person next to you. Here's my question for you. Who should make the first move, the offended or the offender? Real quick, ask the person next to you. You should know that answer. Okay, how many were saying the offended? The offended should make the first move. How many would say that the offender should make the first move? How many would say that either? Both, yeah. Actually, the Bible says either. It doesn't matter whether you're the offender or the offended. You should make the first move. Does that make sense? Because oftentimes when we're the offended, we say, well, they should come to me and apologize. No, no, go and talk to them. You need to go and talk with them and work through that. In fact, if you see that they're, uh, you know, if you feel like they've been hurt or if there's some sort of division going on. By the way, can you typically read, if you know someone really good, can you see that they might, their spirit might be closed when you're kind of talking to them? How many husbands out there have been able over time to, to figure that one out, huh? You come home and all the locks have been changed at home. That's a sign. You can't get in the house. Hey, this key doesn't work anymore. Exactly. They're looking through the window. Get out of here. This is my home. No, does that. That would be a closed spirit, okay? But you got to start kind of checking the, you know, there's hints that happened before that. Sometimes we wait until they're kind of like, it's over, and it's like there were a lot of hints that led up to it when there's that closed spirit. You want to be sensitive. And when you see some, you know, some, when you see some anger or some frustration, uh, I'm a little more sensitive to it now. My wife very seldom, but this last week, I could tell that she was really stressed out because she kind of responded to me like, ah. she very seldom does that. So I was like, hey, everything cool? What's going on? Everything's fine. <laughs> no, she didn't do that. She's just like, no, everything's fine. Is there, is there, do you see something? I go, yeah, I, you feel, oh, I'm sorry. She's so quick. She's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, to be like that. Yeah, I got a lot on my mind and all that. She was just like, really quick. I was just like, okay. Man, I was kind of wrong. I should have said, did I do something? I should have said, hey, did I do something to create that within you or to cause that within you? And I should have probably taken a, a step further. And that's what you do when you begin to see that, hey, I, I noticed you're kind of, do you feel like you're walking around on eggshells with me? Or I noticed you're kind of, I felt a little bit distancing. Is everything cool between us? Man, I don't want that. I love you. 
So it creates the safe environment. That's the idea. Seek reconciliation whether you're the offended or the offender. You see, in fact, and I gave you the verses there, the verses that we looked at, verses 23 through 24 says that. Hey, if you know that somebody's hurt, man, you drop your gift and you head to them and work through that because what he's saying is that you got bitterness going on. If you're just living in a wake of destruction and you don't give a rip about the fact that you hurt them, whether it's valid or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is that their feelings have been hurt. Whether you actually intended to or not. Well, if I, if I did hurt you, I'm sorry. Don't do that. That's crazy. Just say, hey, you know what? I don't want you to be hurt. And I, that's the last thing I want you to feel is to feel a distance between us. I love you. I love our relationship. Man, let's work on this. And so, and so that's, what, uh, that's what verses 23 through 24 are about. And then Matthew 18, 15 through 17 really talks about if someone has offended you, you need to go talk to them. And then Romans 12, 18 says... Uh, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. So what he's saying there is uh, relationships are two-way streets. Take care of your side of the street. Always take care of your side of the street. You want to be melting your mouth sweet and do everything you can to, to build a bridge. Now keep in mind, that doesn't mean to set yourself up to be abused again. Sometimes that you, you have to have distance in that. They have to earn that trust to be back in your life and you just communicate that with them. And you love them in the midst of that, but you have those healthy boundaries. If I can't forgive this person their three sins against me, it's because I'm not living in the reality of God's forgiveness of my three billion sins against him. See, forgiven people are forgiving people. If you, if you understand the forgiveness that he has for you, you're going to be forgiving to others. People who are reconciled to God will be people of reconciliation. So as you're doing the heart work and you have bitterness, and by the way, this isn't easy stuff to work through. There have been people that I've been angry at that they hurt me so bad it took me almost a year to work through some of the hurt. I mean, every time I, their, their name came up and any time I crossed paths with them, it's like, oh, it's like neck veins. Oh. It's like, oh, and, uh, and I would talk it over and I thought I was through it. And then people would say, no, I don't think you're through it because you still see the neck veins. Okay. You got, you're still gritting your teeth. Okay. And you're still pretty angry. And so I kept working and working and working and applying the truth of God's word to my heart. And let's, let me tell you something. He will bring healing to you. He will heal you. And you can get through that by his grace, and that's part of it. Recon, uh, people who are reconciled to God will, will be people of reconciliation. And then this is the big thing. This is really what you're, the hard work you're doing. Because the reason why we won't let go of that is because they have kept us from something that we think that we can't live without. It's called bitterness, but because we've misplaced our identity. We've built our identity on something that they have somehow you know, blocked from us getting in some way. And so build your identity on Christ, and your life will be unshakable. Even rejection, betrayal, and abandonment won't hurt as bad if your identity is in Christ. I'm not saying it will hurt, but if your whole identity is in, in the relationships this way, and, and you've heard me say this many times before, let me reiterate it, let me go back over it. If I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own through Christ, all of my relationships will become an effort to complete myself. It might not just be relationship, it might be your job. If you're trying to find your sense of identity in your job, don't do that. Find your identity in Christ. Don't work for your identity. Work from, from your identity in Jesus Christ. Don't cultivate relationships horizontally to have an identity. From your identity, cultivate relationships. Have a sense of completeness in Christ, and then you have those relationships. Otherwise, all you can bring to that relationship is neediness. 
and desperation. That's why oftentimes people run into relationships too quickly is because they're not finding their deepest satisfaction in Christ. That's what identity is about. Now, it lessens the hurt when people do abandon you. Let me tell you something. As a pastor that's been doing this for many, many years, you have a lot of people that will hurt you. And you'll have a lot of people that come and go and say some pretty nasty things about you. You better have tough skin, especially if you're in ministry. But if your identity's in Christ, you can handle that. You understand where they're coming from. You consider the source. You know that they need to see Jesus' love more, more and more. And when I find myself overreacting, I know that I need to fill my heart up more and more with his amazing love for me. And so it gives me that opportunity. And uh, you will never, a couple weeks ago we talked about this, you will never be married well or single well until Christ is the love of your life. C.S. Lewis put it this way, we shall not be well so long as we love and admire anything more than we love and admire God. We will not be well. See, and, and once again, I'm gonna keep repeating this, we have, uh, because relationships are so big and important to us. If I don't love Jesus more than I love my wife, I will crush her under the weight of unrealistic expectations and she will do the same to me. But if I help her, if our relationship is in such a way that I'm her best friend and she's my best friend and that we help each other to love Jesus more than we love each other, we will love each other well. So you do the same thing with your friendships. You, you're a friend of somebody, you help point them to Jesus so that as, as they love Jesus more than they love you, they will love you well. They will love you sacrificially. You guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? Yeah. So where's your identity? I can tell you where your identity is by how you respond to broken relationships or you know, when your job isn't going so well or your bank account goes down or whatever, your emotional response gives an indication to how much weight that carries in your life. The Bible calls it glory, and he's the one that should carry all the weight and the glory in our lives, and therefore it gives us that ability to be able to manage relationships appropriately. Then when I've offended somebody, I can go to them and talk to them, and when they've offended me, I can go, them, go to them and talk to them and, and, in an effort to bring about reconciliation because I love them and... And I know the Savior's love for me. Uh, by the way, what, what typically happens when we, uh, when we go through a number of broken relationships? Maybe just what have you seen happen in people's lives that they go to a church and they get hurt? What typically happens? They leave the church and then they may, might try to find another church. And then let's just say that they go to another church and then they get hurt again. What's going to happen after that? They're going to probably leave and maybe go to another church, and then they might do that about three or four times, and then finally they'll stop coming to church. Now, by the way, you're going to go to church, and you will get hurt, okay? That's a fact. Anytime you get close, you're going to get hurt. And so you've got to learn how to deal with the hurt. Don't look for another church because you're missing out on an opportunity for greater levels of intimacy and maturity in that relationship. But, uh, but the problem is, is that then eventually we isolate ourselves. And there's a risk in reaching out. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will, be certainly, will certainly be wrung, possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all personal entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. What is he saying? You're going to be hard and bitter over time. That's what he's saying. 
Oh, yeah, okay, I'm never going to get into another relationship again. Listen, don't, don't let your relationships make you hard. Let them make you wise. Be wise in your relationships. That's what he's saying here. And to recognize, wow, I really overreacted here. God, what are you wanting to do in my life? I am really in a deficit when it comes to your love. I'm not living in the reality of your love because I wouldn't have overreacted like that. That's a major overreaction. Okay, God, thank you for showing that to me. And so as you kind of work through that, you're able to allow God to, to meet you right there. So, so here we go. I have a new relationship with others. So this is kind of a different kind of love. I'm learning to love my, my enemies. And it's because I have a new relationship with myself. I'm working through the, the bitterness and the junk that piles up in my life. And I've got my identity solidly in Jesus. And then, because that comes from a new relationship with God. And here's the next fill in the blank. You're never more like your father in heaven than when you love your enemies. You're never more like God, your father in heaven, when you love your enemies. And that's what he says here in verse 45. And, uh, and I, could, I could share with you all kinds of stories about my own life. And as I'm trying to work this in, I mean, I could, I could get in my truck and drive down the road. And this happened to me just this last week. I, I'm driving down the road and uh, someone, it's almost like, I, fe- I felt like they just waited until I was almost up to that intersection for them to pull out in front of me. And it was a gal in, a, in a, like a pickup truck or something. And it, I, I guess it was a gal because it said on the back, cowgirl up. <laughs> and so here's my first response. I'll cowgirl you up. I'll push you down the road. It's like, that was my first natural sinful response. I was like, whoo, okay, Pastor Ray. <laughs> You're going to be talking about love this next week. Where's yours? Eh, nowhere to be found. And so, it, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it's like a, it's an everyday kind of a thing in a battle. And it just gave me opportunity. It's like, wow, okay. Does that really matter that she pulled out in front of me and I had to jam on the brakes and Nancy hit her head on the dashboard? No, not really. <laughs> now, Nancy wasn't with me. But she gets a little tense when I'm driving. And so to, for me to be loving, we usually have to drive 15 and a 45. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That's, that was sarcastic, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, you got bitterness. I do. I need Jesus like you. Okay, here's the next point. God's love transforms his enemies into his dearly loved children. This is what's amazing about God's love. God's love transforms his enemies into dearly loved children. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's the enemy part. We were his enemies. And he makes us his children? That's the gospel. Is that crazy? That's amazing. And not only that, if you were to read that a little bit further, he he actually says this. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is chapter 5, verse 10 of Romans. How much more now that we are reconciled, that we're his children, shall we be saved by his life? I mean, he's like saying, do you have any idea what this means? This is crazy. This is amazing. And... uh, one of the big uh, arguments against Christianity is its exclusive truth claims. And, uh, because, and, and they're not exclusive because we say that they're exclusive. They're exclusive because our Savior says that they're exclusive. Because he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John uh, 
14, 6. And, and if you say, and, and I love, this is what I love about Desert Breeze. We have a lot of people coming in here checking out Christianity and they're kind of kicking the tires and trying to understand that. And, and you may be here and you're, you're saying, well, that's one of the reasons why I'm not a Christian is because you guys are so elitist and so bigoted and so narrow-minded because that's a very narrow-minded uh, view. But let me just say that if you say no religion should have exclusive truth claims, that uh, statement in itself is an exclusive truth claim. When you say that, you basically put yourself in the same category as you're putting us into. And in fact, all religions have exclusive truth claims. And in fact, even if you don't adhere to religion, you probably have some beliefs that would say, hey, if people believe more like me, this place would be a whole lot better. Well, that's an exclusive truth claim. And, and everybody can't, you can't get away with uh, exclusive truth claims. The real question is, what set of exclusive truth claims will turn you into a peace-loving, reconciling, inclusive person? I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel will, because at the heart of the gospel is a man, listen to me, is a man dying for his enemies and praying for their forgiveness as they murder him. And that man is our savior. And he takes rebel kids like you and I and brings us into his family and transforms our hearts and makes us his kids. And that's why it says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's like the writer in 1 John 3, 1 is like going through the ceiling. He's like, can you believe that? We're his children. He loves us that much. I mean, it's overwhelming. And, uh, and that's the heart of the gospel. And then here's the last point, and I'm going to invite our worship band up because we're going to sing a song that talks about this to kind of get that down deep into our heart. The normal Christianity is love philanthropy, receiving so much love from God that you recklessly give it away without expecting anything in return. And so guess what? You're going to have to come back next week because we're going to talk more about how do you get that deep into your heart? Because the next section in the Sermon on the Mount talks about that. It's about prayer. And we're going we're gonna to talk about how do I connect with God in such a way that I'm overwhelmed by his love. And how do I fill my heart up with his love regularly so that I can be really a love philanthropist. To where I'm more and more. So let me give you just some thoughts here as the band's coming up. And I gave you some verses here to look at. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's saying being holy. He's saying that, that as you see what your Father is what your father has done for you, uh, he's saying, do what he has done for you. Oh, is this thing cutting out? Okay. It's these guys up here. Would you guys get off the stage right now? No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. I'm not going to invite you up so quickly next week or next service and next week and the following week. Uh, let me give you a couple verses here uh, or some thoughts here. Your love for God, now this is how you, how do you have this kind of love philanthropy in your life? Your love for God and others grows out of an experience of his love for you. Did you guys hear that? It grows out of an experience. So fill your heart with the beauty and the value of his amazing love for you. 1 John four nineteen. You guys familiar with that where it says, we love because he did what? So it starts with him. It always starts with him. So it's filling our hearts up with his, his love. When you make your home in Christ's love, reflecting on it, saturated in it, standing in awe of it, your life will be fruitful and fulfilling. John 15, 9. He's the vine. We are the branches. And so it's, it's abiding in his love. The fruit of the Spirit is what? 
It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And that will happen more and more as you are more and more swept up into intimate, loving encounters with Christ. So, so you can, before you leave here, I, my prayer for you is that you'd be swept up into an intimate encounter with Jesus, that you'd begin to see his love unlike you've ever experienced before. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you were swept up into his arms and in, in, a, in a spiritual sense, you were overwhelmed by his love and it made a difference in how you begin to live the, out that day and how you responded to the events of your life? See, he wants to do that to you regularly and have you experience that. What words does God want you to treasure in your heart today and every day? Be good, try harder. No, no, no. I love you. I love you. Stand with us as we sing this song. And make this song your prayer. This song kind of goes over and over again and talks about how his love never runs out. Allow him to speak to you this morning, and then I'll come back up and we'll finish up. Yeah. So may this next week... His love overwhelm and satisfy your soul. And may you let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.